The other piece you have to measure it with, I would say, is what can the organization consume? So I was built to build at big scale, right? So you think, you know, 80,000 employees, a hundred and how many thousands employees, whatever, high, high, high growth. You have to step back and say to all those people, you have a lot of, I think it's like a toolkit, right? Or a tool belt. You have all these HR things that people feel like you have to put them in these building blocks. I don't think so. I think you pull out the toolkit based on the maturity of the company, the phase of the company, the size, and that behavior, the neuroses of the organization that you lock into, and um, you pick the right things and prioritize. Because I always say, why, why would we do that? Hey, everybody. Welcome back to the HR Heretics podcast, where we get into the real talk of company construction. These are the conversations that happen between founders, chief people officers, and board members behind closed doors. Today on our episode, we welcome Bridget McInnes Day. I met Bridget when I started at Google Cloud in March of 2020. Looker was acquired by Google. We integrated in, and I met her the day after we onboarded which is the first day of the pandemic. <laughs> That's actually one of my favorite stories from in. the pod is that you guys didn't meet until after you onboarded. It kind of was like an arranged marriage that ended up like working out pretty well for both. She is so good. I can't wait for this episode. She, she literally called me and said, why haven't we met? I didn't know you were coming until a week ago. And... She had just started. She came from SAP as a, a baller executive at SAP. Um, she is now at UiPath as a chief people officer. Talked to her last week. She's She is such a great human and she's hilarious. You know what I love about the episode two, Nolan, is how she talks about talent. Uh, I told her this when we were at Google Cloud. I'm like, you have such just an instinct for talent. I mean, she she'll come in and she's like, I need a number two here. I'm going to call this person. I got this person in Europe. I got this person at Canada. And I don't know how, but it was it was amazing the people she brought in um, and how she thinks about building her team. I can't wait for you all to listen to this. Yeah, same. But before we jump into the interview with BMD, uh, I want to give a quick shout out to HR Brew, the free weekday newsletter that sends the most critical industry knowledge directly to your inbox every day. It's a quick read and it helps you stay up to date on the industry, the future of work, all that that's top of mind and timely. Especially if your head's down, like most of us are on our own initiatives, as we tend to be. It's sound bites, it's helpful, and it's it's real time. It's damn good. So subscribe to the resource or forward it to people on your team. You can find the the link in the description below. Awesome. Let's get into it with BMD. Thanks, everyone. Bridget, so nice for <laughs> see, I just fucked it up. So I'll start over. Keep that. Keep that. Bridget, we're so excited to have you today. This has been, I, I've been looking forward to this for weeks since you said yes, and I begged you to come on. For the audience, I do call Bridget McKinnis Day BMD here or there. So if you hear that, 
that's what that means. It's her full name, just um, in, in initials. We're really excited to get into it with you today. You've done a ton, including acquisitions, big companies, smaller companies. Um, and now, of course, you're at UiPath Scaling, and we're excited to get into it with you and get going. Great. And I think it might have taken me one second to say yes when you asked me. <laughs> <laughs> I think the title of my email was, BMD, you have to be on here. <laughs> So I'm Done. not sure it was a question. <laughs> how do you guys, how do you guys know each other? What's the story there? How we met is Looker. I th- I think we onboarded into Google through that acquisition on March 2nd, something like that. It was the day before the world shut down. And I think it was a couple days later or maybe a couple days before Bridget emails me. She's like, wait, are you guys, what's going on? You guys coming in here? Are you, are you starting? And we just kind of held hands from day one and she was new to Google and to cloud in general. So it was fun to both figure that out and work together on this acquisition with Thomas. And it was what a ride. I give Bridget a lot of credit here. Like, they were kind of like the startup. They were the cutting edge, right? The new energy of of Google and doing things differently and breaking some glass and shaking some things up. We started to see some turbulence in that old model, right? On the integration. And that's where kind of us at Looker were kind of gluing together the HR M&A folks with, with Bridget and her HR leadership team. And I think we made a lot of headway on that. And um, re- the real talk, we can talk about this, but like, M&A, if you don't want to, if you don't want to be in that company, right, fixed term contracts, these things as, hey, hang out for three or six or nine months, we'll give you incentives, we'll accelerate your equity, this and that. There's a whole like back thing on that. And that's one thing about M&A is do do your people want to be fixed term or full time? Because once you're locked into one, you can't really change. Anyway, they can choose. No, but it can be influenced, right? That's kind of one of the secrets of before signing and before joining, you want to work through that very thoughtfully because it has implications. But I was a three-month fixed term and I was like, woo, I'm going to be on the beach. I'm going to blah, blah, blah. And I met Bridget. I'm like, shit, I like her. I got to help. And then I accepted a full-time offer. It just all went in the the, the wrong direction. Is that really what happened, Kelly? Like you had a three-month contract and you were like, I'm about to peace out of here. And then... How did how did they actually convince you to stay? Because like I'm assuming comp had a huge piece in that. No, it didn't. My comp was done. What? It, it was already done. I could have been like bye bye. But I will tell you, Looker had and still has one of the best cultures I've ever seen. I mean, Bridget, you can talk to this. We we came in and <clears throat> you, you want to help. You want to stay and you want to help. And I cared about them. I cared about BMD. And I was like. Eh. And also the world shut down. So I was like, what, what am I going to do? Bang my head against the wall every day. That's true. And I love M&A. And I got to work with the corp dev teams and all that. But but the comp factor really wasn't it. It was like, oh, my God, this is a mess. <laughs> all right. So BMD, so this this you get notified the day before we're announcing. You see this like half page slide that's like, oh, here's like this people thing over here. Like, don't worry about that too much. What then happens over the course of the next couple of weeks? How do you build a relationship with Kelly? And then what happens moving forward from there? I have to tell you, I think it was super easy, right? You're, you're really, I had to call her and be like, hey, I need help, right? We got to take care of the people. And that's the most important thing. And how do we make this a success? And how do we ensure Looker is really uh, well positioned? Uh, because we knew it was very valuable as a company, right? Thomas knew it. And we had some other business sponsors. And so we quickly went on to this is these are the goals we aligned really quickly it was fun and then then i realized she's like oh i'm leaving in three months i'm like oh that doesn't sound like a good idea so and then 
that's not good. Um, you've got to be persuasive a little bit, but we also looked at transformation. How do we transform? Yeah. And then how do we set this up from an m perspective, leveraging those other uh, corporate groups that were very impactful and helpful, but also to what does it mean holistically with the teams and making sure you're leveraging the product, the talent. Um, I had learned, so that was a, I think it was a fast, a really fast connection relationship. She came right onto the team, the leadership team immediately, um, and then started really building out what, what should these things look like and joining every meeting and basically running all of the people side from an overall M&A perspective. I had learned from other companies that, you know, it's how I remember standing in line behind some employees that we had acquired at a previous company. And we did every single one of them a little bit differently, which maybe is not easy, but it meant a lot to based on the um, the CEO, how long they left, et cetera. I remember once standing behind the line and people had been at the company over a year, but they didn't have access to every location because they were still a kind of a separate division. And at that point, I heard some employees say, do they even want us here? And that's when I realized that there is a strategy behind how long does the CEO of the acquired company, you know, stay? When is it healthy? When is it not healthy? Because at some point the employees say like, I, I, am I part of this team or not? And I think those, as you, as you know, Kelly, you learn some of those things. And I remember standing behind these employees and thought, wow. And then studying every acquisition and when, how long did the CEO stay? When did they leave? what's good for their psyche in the process and for them, but also what's good for the retention of the people, but also at some point that diminishes over time. And I think that's striking that right balance of how do you keep those CEOs engaged, the retention, um, but also to being honest about whether or not they feel like they belong. A lot of the discussion we had, Kelly, was around that. And I will tell you between the CEOs, they also cared about that. And I think that it, we got to a pretty good space over the time period. I think that's one of the biggest things with M&A, Nolan, that Bridget brought is like bringing these taboo topics that you don't want to talk about and you kind of avoid out in the front. It's like, hey, we love you. You got acquired. We want you to stay. But do you? Like, it's okay if you don't. It's kind of what we talked about with the tours of duty and this whole thing about keeping people being this old concept and... It was very refreshing because she was like, I, I know a lot of these employees and leaders have spreadsheets around the two-year cash out and the handcuffs and all this shit. Yeah, as as one would. Mm -hmm. That no one talks about and they pretend it's not there and they just like take off. It's like, and having that very like, again, open, refreshing, where are you at? And that's what you did with Frank and Looker and it made a difference. Yeah, so tell me, okay, so from the outside, the Looker acquisition by Google looks like one of the most successful Google acquisitions ever. Like I think about that and I think about DeepMind. From the outside, it appeared that many or most of the employees stayed, um, even though that there's like this like two-year like unlock my golden handcuffs and I'm rich thing, which I think is true. What did you guys do specifically? Because I'm assuming that there are key man concerns. There are business continuity concerns. There's how do we integrate this thing into our existing existing offering concerns. So what did you guys do specifically to make it work? I, th I think number one, honestly, keeping Kelly there as like the 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 center for all things culture and talent, and having her be the lead. I wasn't 
out there in front. She was the lead for all that, knowing the employees and everything. Two, I, I think another piece was really important that we, and this is one I've learned before, when you do acquisitions, some companies have one way of doing it. You hire the people, you put them all underneath someone in the uh, um, inheriting company, and then you move on. What was really a previous CEO I worked with, he was phenomenal. I said, let's lead with all different types of talent. When you go from on-premise to the cloud, you, it's different skill sets, right? So really looking at a talent assessment, who are the top leaders in the company? Uh, Kelly helped us with that. So did Frank. And then really making sure that we found roles that they could lead in the organization. That's like a really big message around, hey, we need to learn from you. And we don't think we have all the right answers. So put the acquired company employees in these lead roles. And the next thing you know, um, then we found people with all new jobs, right? And we tapped a lot of people in Looker to go into other jobs in the company that were also able to then spread the connection with Looker across and think about some of those catalyst type roles. I think the talent play and how you org design and where you put them and with Kelly's knowledge and the support between Frank and, and Thomas, I think that was probably a key differentiator. You probably have some others, Kelly. I mean, you got to know what, what you're getting, right? And sometimes we all know this, sometimes the company is crap and the people aren't that great. And you're buying the technology and it is what it is. And maybe at that point you spend less time on X, Y, or Z and you're clear about what you're doing. The company like Looker, I mean, this talent and they were better in a lot of ways than a lot of the GCP leads and the technology was like amazing. And so the, the greater the culture and the talent and the product, the more delicate and the more slowly and the more partnership you want to have with that organization. And some of these leads are now running things at, at cloud. And so I, I think you have to know what you're getting and that that's okay with that's okay. And that's why we jumped on very quickly. And it's like not kid gloves, but as a partner, right? Not as an <laughs> one company acquiring the other, they retreated as like, you're here because you're better than us in a lot of ways. And how do we, how do we exploit that in a good way? That's fascinating. I love that. Uh, let's transition to talking a little bit about like, Bridget, how you think about your people team construction, how that's changed over the course of your career. And specifically, what does your team look like today at UiPath? Sure. So a couple of things. I've, I've grown up in the Ulrich model uh, for many years. I've been on the COE side. My background's in total rewards, um, all things equity comp, incentive plan design, all those areas. But I knew that I had been in an HR business partners as well. And once you, I think, get a taste of all of it, uh, I don't think you go back. But having the background in comp, I think, is one of the areas for you to really be able to touch, like you talked about, Nolan and M&A. You got to understand the structures. It's really the windows of the soul of the organization many times and how you design the reward mechanisms and motivation. So, or at least that's my belief. Over time, and we talk about when HR really talked about experiences, what's the candidate experience, employee experience, leader experience. For me, I felt sometimes it was a little bit too siloed, right? And so trying to break, we, we used to call it the gray space. Where does it, where do the things drop in the organization? And usually the HRBP doesn't want anything to drop. So they end up picking up everything. And at some point we, we actually thought leaders should take care of their people topics and they should be part of that. 
<laughs> um, wow, really brilliant final idea, right? So um, for me, one of the, my biggest dreams was always to be much more end-to-end as opposed to process-by-process in HR. So if you think about just the candidate experience all the way through to the hire, the offer, the onboarding, for me, I my dream is to really build that from an overall shared service perspective, to get out of process and get end-to-end based on the people who use it, not the people who build it. And that's sometimes in HR, you get in your domain and, and I sometimes, you know, use this analogy that, um, you know, I'm not the type of HR person who's knitting HR sweaters that nobody wants, nobody fits, doesn't fit anybody and nobody needs it because you just, you're building out your domain, but you don't understand the business context, the reality or the experience of the person trying to wear that HR sweater. Right. And your own in your own little silo. So for UiPath, the, one of the first things I looked at was how the organization was designed. Of course, it was designed around a person or a couple people, which happens. Right. And so this doesn't make a lot of sense. Right. And then obviously you're trying to groom someone for something. Right. But when I came in, I said, I want to have it all by talent. If you think about the biggest driver of what we need to compete with, in every market is talent. And so for me, I have a team called Talent Experiences. It's talent acquisition, talent management, talent development, leadership development, and people services so that we can build everything from a talent experience, whether it hit the candidate, the employee, or the leader. And that's how the team is run. Um, And excited to have... uh, was able to um, convince a colleague to come. Her name's Alka Magnet, uh from Germany. And so she had grown up in Romania where UiPath was founded, moved to Germany uh, as, as some of the uh, changes happened uh, in the country mid, mid high school. And she had run all HR for product and engineering at SAP and then talent acquisition. And um, it was great to have her kick off in Romania, speaking the language and, when you have unicorn talent like that and you can envision a new org design, those things kind of can come together. And I don't think everyone maybe sees my vision all the time and I try my best to try to bring people along. I'm, I'm working on it. Um, but it, it really is, that's how we're designing it. And then we have employee communications in our organization, which is really fun because it's, it's really shaping how we communicate everything and, and really drive the messaging because HR always can do a better job at, at messaging. Um, and so those are the kind of pinnacles for us. And when we have a big investment in HR automation as a automation company, as UiPath, we need to be the role models. And so there's a big emphasis on HR automation and how it, it, it runs through our organization. Um, and then probably the only other two new unique things is culture. We carve it out for culture, as you know, it was uh, only a couple couple of years ago from IPO. Keeping culture evolution front and center is really key as we grow uh, and keep centered on that. Bridget, you mentioned the HR sweaters, um, which I love. One? It reminded me of your wig collection. I don't know if Bridget has a wig collection. <laughs> and you still do, I think, right? I do. Um, I do. Great. And you probably won't have an HR sweater collection, but... It's like wigs. I don't know. Just, why do you have a wig collection? She's doing all hands and wigs. It was amazing. <laughs> I recommend it. In fact, we should have done this today, but next time. 
Um, what happens? Like, how do you turn? How do you help those that are wearing the HR sweaters? Because right, you have a CEO background. You're a powerhouse, yeah. like you said. You you tell it like it is, right? You're not super delicate all the time, which I think, which I love. Like how how do you do that, and how do you determine? Well, maybe I I can't do this, right? And and, and to Nolan's question around your team construction. Yeah, I think for me, and it's one of your questions around how do you come into the organization is really around, I always try to find, I call it the like neuroses of the organization. You got to feed the neuroses. What makes the company run? What behaviors, well, whatever you link behind it or push behind it, it'll fly. Um, and you have to find it. You have to figure that out, that behavior, what drives it or not. And so I think that's number one. Really find the neuroses at a company. What it, what is it, and what will drive the behavior across uh, a company? One company I was at, it was all about the customer first. Anything for the customer, you could drive behind it. Anyone would lock in and go. You know that at, at Google Cloud, we did um, the culture of um, customer empathy. How do you put empathy behind it? Because you're in a consumer business trying to drive enterprise. Uh, engagement on a cloud division. So what behavior? And so at, at UiPath, it was really around, I'm trying to link it to the things where um, that drives the behavior. And so that's for me, the biggest thing. And the other piece you have to measure it with, I would say is what can the organization consume? So I was built to build at big scale, right? So you think, you know, 80,000 employees, a hundred and how many thousands employees, whatever, high, high, high growth. You have to step back and say to all those people, you have a lot of, I think it's like a toolkit, right? Or a tool belt. You have all these HR things that people feel like you have to put them in these building blocks. I don't think so. I think you pull out the toolkit based on the maturity of the company, the phase of the company, the size and that behavior the neuroses of the organization that you lock into and um, you pick the right things and prioritize. Cause I always say, why, why would we do that? Is it going to make us and accelerate us to be a high performing, um, you know, profitable growth mindset or whatever your guidance is. And so those are the pieces I would say and challenge those sweaters because who needs them, who asked for them and is it going to fit anybody? <laughs> That's always the question versus, well, I only know how to do what I've told or here's the process or the policy or these things. And that's never the answer. That's never really the, unless it's super illegal, but usually things aren't. So that's, that's how I've, now listen, you know, Kelly, I'm not going to win them all over, but um, usually you've got to get some quick wins and some big wins link with the business leaders. And I have seen here is that that if the information comes out from a leader, there's much more attach rate. So instead of having it be an HR initiative, we enable, we lift, we help drive, but the ownership is at the leadership level. I have seen the attachment here so much better. So you just had to figure out what piece of it was going to drive it as well. D did it ever not work? Like... Many times it works, right? All these things. And I listen to these podcasts. Like, that's great. Align with the leader and have it. That's wonderful. But like, when did it fly back in your face? And what did you do? And what does that look like? Because that's what people really want to hear is not like this model is great, but when it 
hits shit hits the fan. I mean, wh- what goes through your head? How do you know it's going to hit the fan? <laughs> yeah, no, I think I think a couple of things, especially when you're a smaller company, you go to CEOs right away or you just go people are used to having this route right to CEO or decision makers and so they didn't do any other stakeholder management. And so I had to learn learn that first and say, okay, this might take another week, but we've got to manage these stakeholders because it flies right back and says someone designed something, rolled it out, talked to one or two people that doesn't make a solution, right? And I think that's when it flies back in the face that um, you want to be agile and nimble, but you might need to take a few extra days just to get the right buy-in again to your leaders because things have rolled out fast and the leaders, the, the right leaders weren't bought in. The senior ones were, but the people who actually had to have the communication with the employee were totally in the dark. And that's my, my mistake would be you assume the word stakeholder management means a couple of the same things. And so it was the old behavior of just check the box. I've got two leaders and they say, go, we run and fly. And why would I need to do these other things? Well, guess what? the frontline leader who touches most of your employees is completely in the dark. And that's when it f- flies back in the face for sure, for certain. hundred percent. You you have a comp background and I want to talk a little bit about pay transparency and pay equity, which was really big in the news maybe a year ago. And now I don't hear shit about it. How are you guys thinking about pay transparency at UiPath? It's interesting because I think uh, we recently had an employee that put their compensation entire trend of their whole career. So it wasn't really related to our, not just our company, but their whole trend of all their movements, what job, how much they made, what increases they got, how much equity, all that on LinkedIn. Um, because they, this leader felt they, they should be more transparent with pay. Wow. Right. Took our HR team about a good day to manage some of the. <laughs> Thank you. But here's the thing, you know, professional athletes, everyone knows their information. If you're a 16B officer at a public company, they know the information. Um, But we do know outside of the U.S., a lot of countries legally don't share that information, right? So there are differences. And when you're in a global org, you just sort of need to understand when you put that out there, you're going to get more questions on a lot of different things, which I believe the leaders should be able to handle the answer. and that's, that's no one I would say is the leaders have to be able to answer those questions and the why, if it's different, if someone shares their information, they better know why they differentiate compensation based on the role, the people, uh, what they came in as and be able to articulate that. And I think, again, that's where leaders shine when they, they know why they made the decisions. And that, that would be my answer to say, as long as you're able to support transparency, and the leaders can own it. I, I think it's fine. It's just you just have to observe where where you're going to get other issues legally uh, as well. I'm curious to get your take on this because I, I was talking with a compensation friend last week, and his take is is that there's such a push right now for pay equity, and his concern is is that where we're going is everyone is going to have a level and the same comp at that level. And there's not going to be any variance for top performers. And so his concern is, is that it's kind of like a race to the bottom or a race to the middle. 
I'm curious, like what your take is on all of these new laws and how you're thinking about pay disparity between like these top performers who we generally people agree they should be paid disproportionately well versus the rest of the staff. Yeah, I think a couple things. I, I'm going to always have a real positive lens on stuff. So, you know, I'm always thinking that it's, there's can't be, but I think also too, you'll have, you know, people have different points of view of people's decision on performance. You, you read things to say the, the performance rating, Nolan, you might give your employee might be more of a reflection of you than it is of the employee. Right. It's subjective. Yeah, it is. And so then the question you go into this round and round debate about, did they get the point performance rating or not? I think for me, I don't, I think that'll take a, that would take a really long time to get there where everyone's in, into the, like, let's say, quote unquote, this, you know, standard deviation of the smallest range. I still believe people want to differentiate performance and articulate it. However, oh, there's a lot of cultures that feel like team pay is the right way to do it. They're more motivated by teams. And I think you have to really 100% line to the market. Pay equity is important. Market equity is important, internal and external. And so I always go first with what's happening in the market and adjust there. I don't think one size fits all for everything on compensation in a company, especially globally. And we know we make a change like that on inflation, right? We address those things. We should do the same things as we see trends, as we see new generations consume cash versus equity, whatever it might be. And you need to be true to the markets. And, and I, I'm going to stand behind that because we can't predict how the market will change. And I don't think we will have everyone be the same. I, I think it's, and leaders have to know why and be able to articulate it and have that conversation. It wasn't HR told me so. And there's different philosophies, you know what I mean? Like, so if I think about it from first principles, like Nolan and Bridget are in a job. They're both software engineer threes. That would be amazing. But so you get paid market range for a software engineer three, right? Because that's the job you should be doing. And if you're not performing in that job, right, you get managed out or 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 looked at. But I guess for me, I tend to go more on the equity route for that differentiation because even within the range, like what's, let's just say, okay, Bridget makes 20 grand more than you do. I mean, the, the differentiation can be only so much. Like I tend to look at equity for what does Bridget bring to this company over and beyond the day-to-day of a, of a software engineer three. Like, I don't, I don't think that we are advanced enough on the equity side of differentiation. And I still think we're defaulting to pay this person 10, 15 grand more because they're better as the default. I think it gets harder when it's not a high performer or a high potential. And I find people, what I'm, I, I would say more with your comp friend, where I worry about is when we aren't differentiating when people aren't performing. I agree. And that's where it can get dangerous. I'm not worried about, I, I think the ones in the upper echelon Okay, there, there's there's threads, but you still need to differentiate. But if we're not also being really candid and have a good performance management to help people either course correct and do better, or help them find an opportunity that's better for them, that's what I think will erode 
you know, driving more per- pay for performance across the board. Okay. That's a really interesting point. And I, I totally agree with you, but I think the thing underneath that thing is there's like generally 10%, I think at maximum of the company is driving, call it 80% of the company's results. And then you have like everyone else, which you still need. Like there, so, so like I hear you on the low performers, but I'm curious about like the differentiation between like the people you absolutely need to run the business and the people who are actually driving the business results. Yeah, I think it's more than 10%, but that's a, I get your point. Uh, my experience has been with ratings, without ratings, um, and with sort of um, no uh, forced ranking. Uh, I have always still seen people differentiate on the variable pay and differentiate on the equity. On the vehicles that should be differentiated, I, I have had the ability to see that. So even without performance ratings, people still perform. It's just they don't have a rating. And so I think that's the thing. And I, I, I'm with Kelly too, especially when you don't have a rating, the pay equity is really important and the market adjustment's important because that's your guiding principle right there, internal and external. So I still think leaders do it. I do. I have seen cultures that are much more team-based pay and they thrive when they are paid consistently and all, all thrive together or pay together. Uh, but when you've got high risk, high reward roles, I think it'll happen every time. Do you see a lot of changes coming with comp BMD just as a general sphere, right? Do you see radical things happening, new philosophies or five years from now, will, will we, will we be still kind of hobbling along like this? I, a couple of things I see, you know, from an investor perspective, there's a lot more scrutiny and spotlight on uh, stock-based compensation, dilution rate, burn rate, where I think in the tech environment, the last, I don't know, tell me, five plus years, not that people thought it was free, but it was seemed to be a little bit more uh, free or not not something that was front and center because of the just the high trend in the tech market. So I think now um, it's going to curb in terms of what that looks like and have be much more strategic on your equity plan design and your distribution as well. And then what that drives, I think that's where the scrutiny comes in and it, it pushes us to be more strategic. I think that's, that's great. And then you have to get more creative on the cash sides and look at, like I said before, where are you in level of career? What country you're in? Is cash more uh, valued? Is equity is is incentive? And I think the creativity there will help differentiate again whether or not someone wants to be at the company. If you make it too vanilla, it isn't exciting. I agree. I, I the equity side I think is already getting. I mean, looked at. We're looking at you know boxcar grants and delayed grants and two year vests or 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 if you want to bet on yourself, a one year vest and go from there. I mean. Extending exercise windows um, when when folks terminate, things like that. Stock-based comp is a really interesting topic, Bridget, because it, it, the experience for me as, as primarily like a private market people operator is you have your employee stock option pool and, you know, you basically go and budget it out and you take it to the board and, you know, everyone says, okay, this looks good. It's a different world now for public market tech companies, especially 
because investors deeply care about stock-based comp and dilution. How does that show up for you? And how have you changed over the last two, three years as this has become more of a, a discussion? Yeah. So the discussions, like I said, with the comp committee and the board are much more strategic. And your burn rate, it gives you kind of an indicator of the future. So that's really important. And it's, I think strategically, you have to one, know all your metrics and understand what portion of your spend you have towards these elements, right? So it's not like something that just we, you know, give away. And then you look at your overall pay mix strategy. Again, is it, is your pay mix or, or is your comp philosophy higher equity incentive? You've got to restate, really restate and look at that. And the conversations are really strategic and you have to set some targets. Where does your burn, where do you want your burn rate to give you the indication of the, of the future? Um, where will you go big and have an exception? They can't all be exceptions, right? Um, and then the other thing I have to say, I, and, and this is one of the examples, was really around educating your leaders, first line all the way up to understand why do we give equity? Why do we give bonuses? How, how is it configured behind there? Because they have to have those conversations. Um, and then what we did with our CFO, too, is explain how does stock-based compensation impact the company results? What does that look like? And, and have our, all of our senior leaders, several layers to understand it, bring them in the full and, and it's more of an education so that they can be part of that solution. And that, that worked really well. I love the CFO roadshow idea. That, that's a great idea because I don't actually think most people understand stock-based comp and how much investors care about it today. I have a friend at a company who will remain unnamed that told me when they were designing their layoffs, one of the inputs that they looked at was stock-based comp because they were under so much pressure from public market investors. That's how that's how intense it is right now. And that's that's the conversation I don't think people are really having around SBC. Yeah. And I think another role I would say is your investor relations person who's out there handling all these questions and bringing that back into the organization. Those roadshows would be great because... Sometimes you don't know what they care about, right? Some people just look at stock price, but there's a lot behind it. And uh, I think that we're going to have to be very creative and strategic and probably create where we go in comp. Because again, I'll always go back to what does the market tell us and how is it trending? And you got to be quick to make some changes and see what works and what doesn't work. And then explain that to employees. <laughs> So I, I get questions all the time while we're on comp, one last, you know, specific kind of zinger, um, at least once a month, it was more when the market was hot of HR leaders calling me saying, Hey, like, what, what am I not asking about this company? One might get my offer. Like what's in, what's important to consider going to this company and accepting an offer and what should I negotiate for? Like, it's still I'm surprised at how many, how often I get that question from leaders that own the comp philosophy for the company. So my question to you is like, what are the, what are the key questions you ask or the pieces you look, look at in companies before you join? And then what what are non-negotiables that HR leaders should be negotiating for in their own offers? Yeah. I think one, you got to know your non-negotiables right up front, right? That's, that's number one. Two, I think you need to know your value. And especially if we're in our space, we should know it. And I, and I think he can talk to your, you know, executive recruiting 
uh, friends in different areas, uh, however you want to uh, get the information, but really know the value, not just about today, but where does the, where does the CEO want to take the company? That's what you need to pin, pin your price on in terms of what that looks like in the future. And then what what value you bring to it, meaning, okay, did they want the stock to increase? Is it growth? Is it completely a turnaround? Whatever that is, and what role HR has to play to lead that, that's where the negotiation, I think, needs to happen. Um, and I, I think the big hard part, I'm sure you find this a lot, is walkaway comp is becoming less and less of a lever, because, you know, depending on what kind of, if the stock was underwater, the RSUs, whatever it was, the people are trying to negotiate for walkaway comp, but it might not be valuable. So I think when you're coming in, sometimes you have the ability to say, hey, here's what we offer. You can take the stock price higher. That's why we're hiring you, right? And you've got a little leverage sometimes. So you really need to know whatever the company is going to do, what big role do you play? And that's where your leverage is. But that that equity piece is, um, I think, closing the gap of where they leave and when they come in is right now probably the biggest question mark I'm seeing because it's starting to go away a little bit. And then also to when does that first equity grant vest is always a question. And that's where they need to negotiate. Unless they're negotiating with me, then they can do <laughs> And just when they're coming in, because I do like the negotiation part. I, I love that part. But that's, to your point, know what you're walking away from and understand how much HR is going to be leaned on versus other teams. Do you worry that the negotiation drives a bigger disparity for pay equity? Uh, it does. It, it, it depends on where you hire from. And that's why you have to be really selective of these were the these are the roles where we're going to have to go outside of the range, potentially, if we're going to go with the biggest person. I think Google Cloud, we, we, we're really, really specific on our talent strategy. Or if you're trying to build talent bench, which roles do you have to go after to build bench for the future? And be okay if you have to go out of the, be, you know, closer to higher in the range. But it can't be everyone, right? Makes total sense. I want to transition to talking about failures. And I'm, I'm just curious to know, like, what is your biggest failure? So there's a few, of course. Um, I, I think, I think a couple of things, I think I've sent the wrong document to some people before with maybe they might've been on the document. <laughs> I think we've heard this one before, Nolan. <laughs> I've done that one before, maybe more than once, or I didn't read the whole email and realized there was information about some people in there that I probably shouldn't have shared. I've, I'm, I'm pretty transparent and open. So I, I tend to share more than I should. So I think probably those biggest ones were that, you know, and then you've got to sit and defend yourself in a, in a, um, deposition to understand why would you send that? Well, yeah. There's mistakes. Oh, interesting. So you've been deposed. I've also been deposed. Many times. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Many times. Uh, that is, that's actually more than I expected. Bridge <laughs> is like, yeah, I've been inside a couple of times. No big deal. Is this typically from like employee suits? I remember you have to, sometimes they bring us in to see what, what's, what's the breakdown between the employee and the leader. 
and and you're going to try to give you the, the the boundaries of what's real and what isn't real and what they're fighting for and what isn't um, real. I, I think even sometimes I remember when I was in my first real job, some of the um, I had to be questioned because of my age coming into a company where, um, you know, if you're, you're a protected class and you're an up and comer coming into an organization, it wasn't at me, but uh, because of me coming in very young in my career in a role, um, I had to give a lot of information, like, how did you get here? All that just because of uh, maybe somebody else in the company as well. Yeah. So. Wow. I know. Right. So every question, you know, how did this happen? How did, you know, so you just, like you said, you just tell the facts and it wasn't my fault. I was that age, you know, it just sort of happened that, um, I had some good experience as well. That could be a career, a deposition coach, some sort. I mean, I, my deposition coach, I've learned from it. It really does matter. And it's, it is a different language than the language that you speak day to day, which is, I, I, I had never been deposed before up until a couple of years ago. And that was a really big learning experience as an HR leader, because everything that you put into email, into Slack can ultimately be used as evidence. And then you will have to explain yourself years after into what exactly you meant. So it, it did, it did change my uh, thought process around transparency and specifically around how I communicate. Mm-hmm. You you have to, I mean, especially as people get more and more sensitive about performance feedback or they didn't get an op, they didn't get a promotion or something happens. Um, you have to be really, be really factual on what you share and you, you um, put privilege and, uh, you know, on your things where you know that you need legal protection. And so, yeah, it does make you uh, a little more guarded and then also to you just um, making sure you don't nothing you'd want on a head. I always say that to my children, like, hey, you don't want it to be on the front page of the news. Headline reads, you know, X. That's always my litmus test. Is this a good thing to do? Is this a good idea? I always put that out there and you're like, probably not. That's not it's not worth it. It's not worth it. So. So, yeah. Yeah, I often use, hey, if I if I was going to say this in front of the whole company, what I feel, could I say it at an all hands or a town hall? Talk about it. Um, I know we're almost at the hour, BMD, just to transition to our quick rapid fire segment uh, called Talent Rules. A um, couple questions for you. One is interviewing. What What is the interview question you've leaned on throughout your years that gives you some of the best signals on candidates? Yeah, number one, I always start off very casually get them talking about anything, anything it is. It could be something benign so that they're so comfortable. They're going to tell you what they're going to tell you. So it's not a direct question. It's more of a style. Um, and just guidance to anyone who's listening to this. It's always an interview. It's never just a conversation. I usually get them very, um, to see what they're like, who they really are, what they're going to share. Um, I'm shocked sometimes of what they share, even in an HR interview. It just sometimes blows my mind, but it, that's good for us to know early. And the, the only other question is always, um, I try to sniff out entitlement. For me, that's a no-go. And so how they describe themselves, what they've done and how they drive things or who they're connected to, that 
that's where I try to sniff out by asking different questions um, as well. And the body language, the eye contact, I know it's different culturally, but the body language and the eye contact is usually what I try to read as, as you go through the entire interview. Yeah. Awesome. And who, who has been one of your best hires and why in your career? <laughs> I'll pay you later. Pay you later. Beyond you, Kelly, right? So there you go. <laughs> I have to say, I've hired so many people career-wise. I can't just say one, but I have to say my, one of my first hires is always my successor. So I think one of the things is you, you need to know you've got to hire someone as bigger, bigger than you right away. Um, and it helps give you lots of options, but also it gives you a bench in your organization that, you know, you, you can't just be always the one who has to be needed. I think that's the most important hire is your successor. A players hire A players and B players hire C players. And what I've learned is that hiring that successor early ultimately helps distribute the massive amount of workload that all of us have in that role. I love that. I love that strategy. Awesome. Thank you for the time, Bridget. BMD, you're a legend. Thank you so much. Nolan and Kelly, this has been great, super fun, and I appreciate the invite. HR Heretics is a podcast from Turpentine, the network behind Econ 102, Moment of Zen, and Turpentine VC. Subscribe, five stars, share it on Apple, YouTube, Spotify, anywhere you get your podcasts, all the things.